Welcome once again to the Anesthesia Compass podcast. I'm joined again this week by Dr. Ben Gupta. Last week, he told us about his experiences with MSF, focusing mostly on people, both the patients he anaesthetised and the anaesthetists on the project. This week, we'll explore the other two points of the Anesthesia Compass, the kit that you use and the availability of various drugs in difficult environments. Ben, when you work on an MSF team, are there any particular restrictions on the techniques that are available to you? Why are those restrictions there and did they constitute much of a problem for you during your time? Thanks, Mike. Uh, it's a good question. So I don't think MSF places restrictions, as far as I'm aware, it doesn't place restrictions on anaesthetists in terms of techniques per se, other than perhaps to encourage you to stick to the safe and tried and tested methods and, and certainly not be do, trying to do anything that be outside of your normal practice. It's probably more the situation in which you find yourself working that places those restrictions on you. So, for example, the electrical supply in many parts of the world is uh, poor and unstable, uh, coupled with the fact that, as you touched on in, in an earlier podcast, the access to compressed gases just isn't isn't uh, isn't there for most parts of the world. That immediately means that the anaesthetic machines that we're used to are useless, and we're we're switching over to draw over type uh, setup. So that's certainly a, a big change in technique for most people. There's also a lot of restrictions placed on you in terms of the drugs available, in which I would include blood, which is often in short supply, and that's for various reasons. And I, th I think this is one of the areas where you perhaps might have to make most adaptations because we get very used to the sort of small uh, cohort of drugs that we use on a daily basis and that often dictates the techniques that we use and then when they're suddenly switched you have to change the way you think about certain things. One reason the drugs can be in short supply is because of supply chain issues so some drugs are somewhat uh, more fragile when being transported over long distances and perhaps also rely on cold chain uh, supply chains. Uh, so muscle relaxants might be an example of that. But the, the thing I have noticed is that propofol is often not found. And I, I've always assumed that that's probably because it's a bit difficult to supply, certainly in certain uh, formulations, uh, and doesn't, isn't necessarily that heat stable when in, in hot environments. Whereas thiopentone, so in the powdered form, is very easy to transport and very stable and has a very long shelf life. So that seems to be found... Uh, more frequently in the places I've worked. Um, sometimes there's interesting sort of political things as well. So when I was working in Jordan, there was no such methonium available, which is odd because it's a country with good supply chains. And um, I asked the local doctors about this, and they seemed to think, local anaesthetists, that it was available until recently, but then there'd been some sort of falling out at a political level with the company that supplied such methonium. So that was now no longer available. So they had all also had to adapt the way that they worked because that's a drug that everyone was used to using. I think there's also restrictions placed on you by the personnel that are available. So the lack of uh, trained staff in the perioperative aspect of care, so that might be in terms of in an emergency department and resuscitating patients, but also in the post-op department, lack of recovery nurses or lack of any trained nurses, for instance, alters, places restrictions on you and therefore alters the way that the anaesthetic technique that you might choose. 
And I think broadly speaking, what I've found is that in the situation where there's a lack of trained personnel, especially in the recovery side of things, what happens is I tend to err uh, towards regional anaesthesia. And the advantage of that is that if you've got a safe, if you've got a stable patient who's having an operation done under regional anaesthesia, it's then not an unreasonable thing to do in that setting to go and see the next patient who may be shocked and require some resuscitation before they come to theatre. And it's also not an unreasonable thing to do to park that patient who may have had their procedure done under spinal or, or a limb block of some kind in recovery and intermittently pop out and check they're okay or ask another member of, another member of staff to keep an eye on them. So lots of advantages when constraints are tight in terms of personnel to moving over towards uh, the regional side of things. You must have found yourself in a situation from time to time when you found yourself using a technique that you wouldn't normally have chosen to use in Bristol. Could you give us a few examples of how that sort of thing can arise and how you adapt to it? So, yeah, thanks for that question, Mike. So situations, uh, let me think, situations where we've had to use techniques not normally used. Um, I, the first thing I'd say is that I think in terms of changing techniques or techniques that we don't normally use, I think there's often a process of adjustment certainly that I've been through and talking to other people it seems to be a, a common process whereby when you first go to work in a resource poor environment your focus shifts more toward away from quality and towards safety so I sometimes think that when we work in the UK a lot of the safety aspects rightly or wrongly are often taken in grant taken for granted there's a lot of safety nets in, in place to help us with that and so there's a lot of focus on the quality of the anaesthesia that we're, we're delivering. Um, and when, when you go to work somewhere where those safety nets aren't in place, your focus very quickly shifts towards safety. And that may well be at the expense of, a, of quality, if you like. And then I think as time goes on, you realize that you can't always uh, guarantee the safety uh, level that you would like. So then you perhaps have to compromise to a certain extent the safety of the anaesthetic you're given over the option of not giving an anaesthetic at all. And that can be a difficult mental adjustment, I think, and everyone has to sort of find their own line that they're happy with at the point at which they would say, actually, this is so unsafe, I think it's more reasonable to do nothing, or in the, under the circumstances, we're gonna have to just get on with this and, and do what we can with what we've got. In terms of new techniques, as I touched upon in the last answer, um, one of the main new things that you're forced into doing by circumstances is moving over to a draw-over type setup. Um, and the beauty of this is that it is unbelievably reliable. And sometimes, you know, when I'm dealing with anaesthetic machines that have failed their their auto automatic testing, or the computer in front of me has jammed for the fifth time that day. I sort of think of this small Oxford miniature vaporizer which was dropped and kicked about and not serviced for, for years on end that we used in Papua New Guinea and how we anaesthetised patient after patient safely with that. It sort of makes you want to cry sometimes when you realise how unreliable some of the equipment we use here is. So the Oxford miniature vaporizer or other drawover vaporizers such as the Diamedica vaporizer which is widely used are ideally suited to this because they are so reliable. Um, they do have a few slight uh, drawbacks. So the main drawback I've found is that they're not brilliant for gas inductions. And in most 
resource poor settings when you're a solo anaesthetist you will be anaesthetizing lots of different patients lots of children amongst them and the, the reason for that is because you just can't especially if you it's difficult to get a good mask seal in a small wriggling baby and if you can't get a good mask seal with the drawover equipment uh, most of the time there's not very much flow going through the vaporizer which means that the patient doesn't get much anesthetic uh, so drawover uh, draw gas inductions can be painfully slow and therefore very difficult to do in a wriggling child so a common technique to get around this and one that I found works really really nicely is to give the child uh, a, a small dose of IM ketamine and then once they're slightly sedated you can get a really nice tight seal with the mask and then the gas induction can proceed smoothly. That's I mentioned that because that's a technique that I think would be frowned upon in this country giving getting asking mothers to hold babies whilst you inject ketamine into their buttocks but I think in that setting it's a safe and acceptable uh, technique and really a very safe way of putting very small children off to sleep uh, when it's difficult to get a cannula in or do a gas induction. <coughs> the other technique that I've, I used a lot, which I wouldn't do in this country, and again it touches on that, that balance between uh, sort of quality and safety, is uh, landmark guided nerve blocks, which I think in the UK are probably deemed unacceptable now. Everything's done under ultrasound or with a nerve stimulator or sometimes both. But for, for, for safety reasons, regional anaesthesia is often the best technique and it is possible to give really quite good regional anaesthesia uh, using very basic techniques. For instance, I've done hundreds and hundreds of awake operations on people with machete wounds to their arms we're doing an axillary block and the way that we did the axillary block over and over again was to get a blunted green needle, use a landmark technique to identify uh, the correct spot and then you go in and then by feel, you can feel when you're in the sheath and then we would inject a reasonably large dose of lignocaine with adrenaline added, the adrenaline to make the lignocaine last a little bit longer and we did lots and lots of operations, we found we could get good surgical anaesthesia for at least two hours off that sort of block. But I think if you went around sticking blunt green needles into people's arms uh, and calling that an acceptable technique uh, in the hospital in the UK in which I work, people would be, be frowning at your practice. But in that setting, um, I think that's a very reasonable, very safe uh, technique to, to perform. You've already mentioned ketamine, and we both agree that it's a very important drug in the situations you've been talking about. But a little while back, there seemed to be a threat to its availability. How did that come about and what's been happening since? In fact, there was a debate a few years ago at the AAGBI where the motion under debate was ketamine is a dangerous drug and the WHO are correct to schedule it to limit its use. I was arguing against the motion on that day and what I'd like to do now, if it's okay, is just to reprise my notes slightly and go through my arguments with you. So. Like many things, whether you consider ketamine to be a dangerous drug depends on context. A better statement might be, ketamine is a drug, which, if used incorrectly, can be dangerous. To be fair, all I've done here is change the original statement into a truism, which could be applied virtually to any drug, but we as a society, through our regulatory bodies, routinely make these sorts of value judgments about all drugs, both legal and illegal, about where that line lies between the benefit and the harm. 
So where does that balance lie for ketamine? The safety profile of ketamine as an anaesthetic are well known, and I won't labour the point, but it's worth bearing in mind that in many, if not most, parts of the world, ketamine is the only way of safely giving a general anaesthetic without an anaesthetic machine, without an oxygen source, and without electricity. It's also, of course, often the only strong analgesic available due to a lack of opioids in low and middle income countries. More of which later. There was a large survey published in 2012 by Daniel Vaux and colleagues in which 590 facilities across 22 low and middle income countries were surveyed. Over 70% of respondents said they had good access to ketamine, whereas only 53% had regular access to any form of anaesthetic machine and 35% of respondents reported that they had no access to oxygen at all. Perhaps, however, highlighting the benefits to anaesthesia in, in uh, low and middle income countries is less of an argument for the use of ketamine and really more of an argument for improving existing anaesthetic facilities. I would argue it's both, and when the day arrives that all low and middle income countries have a reliable electricity network and safe piped oxygen supplies, reliably maintained anaesthesia machines, and adequately trained anaesthesia providers, you could argue that ketamine should be relegated to the status of niche use only. Unfortunately, that situation seems depressingly far in the future. And whilst efforts are being made to improve the situation for our colleagues in low resource settings, to deprive millions of patients of the means of safe anaesthesia in the meantime would seem to be particularly cruel. Just to briefly shift the focus away from low resource settings for a moment, it's important to remember that ketamine is widely, if not frequently used <coughs> in high resource settings, in trauma and pre-hospital anaesthesia, and is finding new uses in the treatments of chronic pain syndromes and severe depression. So what about the harm caused by ketamine? Well, undoubtedly it has become more popular worldwide as a recreational drug in recent years. Drug addiction has social and physical consequences for the individual and of course cost implications for society. But is ketamine really that dangerous? In one of the largest case series published, 233 patients admitted to an emergency hospital, emergency department sorry, in Hong Kong were, were studied. Ketamine was a contributing factor in all their admissions with impaired level of consciousness being the most common presenting symptom. However, 72% were managed conservatively and discharged directly from the emergency department and of those admitted, it was reported that ketamine was unlikely to have been the main cause for admission. Similar patterns in acute morbidity are also reported in other case series. Chronic use is known to cause renal tract disease, but serious irreversible damage as described in various case series seems to be rare and related to high dosages used over a prolonged period of time. The majority of users are intermittent recreational users. Although I've already touched on it, this brings me on to the second part of the statement, which in essence is saying, assuming ketamine is a dangerous drug, which I don't think it is, unless it's grossly misused, the World Health Organization is correct to schedule it. In fact, the WHO can't schedule drugs, that's for the United, Nation, the United Nations Commission on Narcotic Drugs, the CND, to do, taking into account advice from the WHO. Nonetheless, what's being referred to here is the designation of ketamine as a Schedule One drug, as proposed by China a few years ago. A few points of note. Firstly, Schedule One substance is defined as a drug or other substance that has high potential for abuse and which has little or no therapeutic effect. Well, limited therapeutic effect with reference to ketamine, this is simply not true on a worldwide scale and not even true or accurate 
by UK standards. Secondly, the CND drug scheduling recommendations are just that, recommendations, and countries are free to use them as such. So that being the case, why would it matter if the CND scheduled ketamine? Well, this would mean that a host of very tight regulatory expectations are placed on a country if it wishes to import or manufacture the drug legally. One of the most important of which is that only state-owned or state-licensed premises can possess or manufacture the drug. And this may well be easily workable in mature healthcare systems, but history suggests that in countries that can't demonstrate a sound regulatory framework, the most likely outcome is that the import supply will simply dry up. Unfortunately, there's historic precedent for this. Morphine is also a Schedule I drug, and as a result, the vast majority of morphine produced worldwide is used in a limited number of rich countries. It's estimated that millions have died in pain as a result of this UN directive and the subsequent lack of morphine availability in poor resource settings. It's worth saying that on behalf of anaesthetists worldwide, the World Federation of Societies of Anesthesiologists, the WFSA, has been incredibly active in advocating at World Health Organization level for the ongoing availability of ketamine in low and middle income countries. For lots more information, just Google WFSA ketamine and you'll find information about their ketamine as medicine campaign. The WHO website currently states the medical benefits of ketamine far outweigh potential, the potential harm from recreational use. <clears throat> Controlling ketamine internationally could limit access to essential and emergency surgery which would constitute a public health crisis in countries where no affordable alternative exists. So for the moment, the supply of ketamine worldwide to deliver safe anaesthesia seems to be secure. I'd like to just finish this with a quick anecdote. A few years ago, when working as an anaesthetist for MSF in Papua New Guinea, I had to leave the project at short notice. In the week before I left, I rapidly started training one of the health officers how to safely administer ketamine for short procedures and also how to maintain ventilation for short periods with a bag valve mask. In my absence, they were, under the supervision of the surgeon and following my guidelines, allowed to give general anaesthesia with ketamine. On my return, 40 procedures that could not have been delayed had been performed. They ranged from reduction of open fractures, incision and drainage of large abscesses, removal of retained placenta, repair of acute soft tissue injuries and acute burn debridements. Obviously this is a less than ideal situation but there is no doubt that if you remove ketamine from this scenario the project would simply have ground to a halt for two weeks and many patients would have been far worse off as a result. Ten days in the tropics with an open fracture or without having your burn properly debrided is no joke. Sepsis can kill very quickly in that environment. This is just one small example, but if you multiply it up on a worldwide scale, thousands, perhaps millions of patients will be benefiting from ketamine as we sit here now, debating its value. So, in summary, ketamine is a drug that is currently still essential in fighting the growing international burden of unmet surgical need. If it were to be placed under schedule at United Nations level, this would be of dubious benefit for the countries that are concerned with drug abuse and catastrophic for those for whom it is an essential, irreplaceable anaesthetic drug. Thanks Ben. You've given us a lot to think about and a real insight into what it's like to apply yourself to a challenging overseas situation. 
Next time, I'm hoping to interview someone with a very different experience. Born in a village in rural Cameroon, his first job was as a cleaner, and he's now working as an intensivist in a Kenyan university hospital. Thanks to all of you for listening today. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to these podcasts via your usual podcast provider, and do tell your friends the same. Till next time, from Ben and me, it's goodbye. Goodbye.